Future of Finance podcast, where finance finds its future. Hello, I'm Dominic Hobson, co-founder of Future of Finance. My guest today is Vadim Sobolevsky, co-founder of Futureflow, a private company whose services use data to address financial crime and make economic policy more effective. Prior to starting Futureflow, uh, Vadim worked in fixed income at Barclays Capital and in asset management, most recently as a portfolio manager at the hedge fund Finisterre Capital in London. Vadim, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. Now, I've already said quite a bit about you, but do tell us a bit more about yourself uh, first. Uh, how did you come to be running Finisterre, not Finisterre Capital, to running Futureflow? Yes, sure. So we started Futureflow about six years ago at this stage, and it was actually quite accidental. I started working on the idea behind Futureflow, which had been sort of lurking somewhere in the back of my head for uh, quite a few years prior to that. And I started actually putting pen to paper while I was looking for a job. I was uh, in a transition period between jobs, and I thought that, well, that was a great time to actually crystallize some of the thinking that I've had behind what eventually became Futureflow. And so it was really just a, just a fun research project, which I didn't expect to lead um, to the company creation, but it became so fascinating and so interesting. And I think it was quite topical for the time, considering that it was in 2016, that um, you know, we, I, I started spending more and more time thinking about it and actually designing the concept around it, that at some point um, I decided to start a company and uh, my co-founder, Xavier, whom I had known for many years from my previous job, um, was a great supporter of the idea. He's obviously a, a, a very clever guy. I, I always valued his opinions, and you know, we, we, we bounced back, uh, back and forth quite a few ideas while we were working. So we decided that uh, that's really what, should we, what we should be doing. So before we knew it, we started a company. And for quite some time, it was more of a... It was almost like a research effort, you know. It was it was a very conceptual sort of uh, thinking process where we were uh, engaging with the banking system, engaging with various regulators that we knew at the time, trying to figure out uh, where there's an application for our idea, what what part of our idea sticks, um, what part doesn't, and uh, that really how it started back in 2016. Mm-hmm. You've kind of begun to to answer this question, but there is a reason your business is called Future Flow, and that's that the flows between uh, entities are more interesting than the than the entities themselves. Uh, so, when exactly did this possibility of exploiting that opportunity first occur to you? Yes, yeah, so I started uh, thinking about this first uh, many years ago. It must have been around two thousand nine, two thousand ten. It was kind of at the depth of the. Uh, global financial crisis that we had back in 2008. I was a fresh MBA graduate or recent MBA graduate at the time. I was in between jobs, I believe. And one day, I remember riding a subway in New York and thinking that, I kind of thinking about my current financial situation at the time. And I thought, you know, it's really interesting that the money that I had in my bank account at the time um, had quite random sources. You know, some of it came from, I don't know, a consulting gig that I was doing at the time. Some of it came from, um, you know, my wife who might, might have been working somewhere. Basically, it had lots of, you know, sort of random um, connections there. And I thought that that all stops with my bank account. You know, when I go around and I spend my money, none of that information is, is available. And of course, that's by design. But 
what I started thinking about is that knowing what sort of linkages exist in an economy based on this flow of funds um, is actually a very valuable um, thing to have. And it potentially is something that makes the flow of funds as such very interesting from an analytical point of view and potentially um, makes the principals, you know, the entities who, who spend money in transactions uh, a lot less relevant, let's put it this way. So the way I was imagining it at the time is that if, let's say, if I walk into a store and I want to buy a T-shirt and, you know, I pay with my debit card for the T-shirt, or let's say I give them I don't know, a $20 bill to pay for the T-shirt, uh, the business doesn't really know anything about the money that it receives. It's not really curious or interested in the money that it receives. It's interested in me. It tries to understand who I am. It tries to, you know, usually when you go, a lot of times you go to a store, people ask for your postcode or your age, you know, they kind of try to look at you to figure out what is our consumer like, right? What is their demographics? What is their sort of, you know, where, where do they live and what postcode, et cetera. Trying to understand what is the profile of their typical customer but when I'm buying that T-shirt, I'm giving them money, whether it's cash or whether it's money from my bank account. And that money has a lot of information, traces of information. That is, they're very valuable as well, theoretically, but that's not really known. And I thought that if, we, if, if it were known, then we would know a lot more about the economy. We would know a lot more about what's happening in the economic system without really trying to understand the principles. And so it, it ultimately came down to understanding the flow of funds. And this is why very casually when I thought about that idea, we, you know, I started thinking about well, flow, stock versus flow, so flow. <laughs> and of course, that's how we think about flow in the future. So this is how the, the concept of future flow came to my mind. And when many years later we started the company, we didn't really want to spend too much time thinking about how to name it. And I said, well, when I started thinking about this, I used to think of it as future flow. Should we just call the company that? And that's how it started. Mm -hmm. Now let's talk about the, the other half of your your business, if you like, which is um, central bank digital currencies. And whether digital IDs are a good way into, into this topic or not, I don't know, but certainly personal privacy has come up in the context of uh, central bank digital currency. You know, do we want the central bank looking at all our transactions, which might be one outcome of a particular CBDC design? Uh, do you think that, and this is a more general question, I suppose, do you think that privacy and confidentiality are potential obstacles to the implementation of a CBDC in a liberal democracy when we see what's happening in China already? But is it a kind of showstopper uh, for CBDCs no. in other markets? No, I don't think it's a showstopper. And this, this really goes back to what we were discussing uh, a few moments ago when we were talking about the GDPR and we're talking about sharing data across financial institutions. As I said back then, uh, GDPR, it really makes this conversation easier because it, it creates clarity around uh, the concept of what's, um, you know, what's possible, what's, what's allowed and what's not allowed. A lot of times when, um, when you hear these discussions about a central bank looking at our transactions, uh, people don't appreciate the fact that the GDPR really helps it uh, to be under, to be clear what is allowed and what's not allowed. Okay, so so in other words, the central bank can only be looking at our transactions. Let's put it. Let's let's, let's simplify the conversation. Let's let's talk about a specific central bank just to make it easier, right? So let's talk about Bank of England, for example, since we're here in the UK. So the UK is subject to an equivalent, excuse me, of the GDPR. Right, so, so the only way in which Bank of England could be looking at our transactions is 
one, if it were to deliberately break, break the law, knowingly and deliberately break the law, or um, if it were to uh, inadvertently break the law, right? As in, you know, there could be some rogue actor that somehow does something that, that uh, the central bank is unaware of. So I don't believe that an institution like Bank of England would ever be deliberately breaking the law. I think that doesn't make any sense. Um, and I think systems can be designed where rogue actors can be prevented from doing that. So I think that uh, this, this concern, if you will, is, is overdone. So I think that in a liberal democracy, as you mentioned, so again, let's talk about the UK, for instance, let's talk about Bank of England trying to implement CBDC. I think the discussion with the population will be quite clear, right? That contract, if you will, between the government institutions and the central bank and the population will be quite clear in terms of what the central bank will and will not do with the data. And uh, the, uh, you know, the, the data protection legislation in this country will make it very clear that that's what the central bank will or will not do. Now here, this is something that came up very clearly in, uh, in the House of Lords report on CBDC that came out a few months ago. I think um, that report was quite clever in highlighting the fact that uh, it's not really the risk of Bank of England uh, spying on individuals, uh, but rather the perceived risk of them ever doing that, that is the problem, right? So in other words, it's no matter how, I guess the report's angle is that no matter how much Bank of England will be, will be telling us that they're not doing it, um, it's really the problem that people just wouldn't believe them, right? And here, I don't, I think that, that the Lords were quite right uh, to highlight that as a potential problem, but I don't think it's a, I don't think it's a true problem. It's just a perceived problem. Now, if we go away from the conceptual conversation and towards like hardcore um, data structures, if you will, and again, this is something that, that we're working on. In our data architecture, the part of the overall data universe that the central bank sees, right? So in other words, the central ledger that the central bank uh, operates in this classical, or I shouldn't say classical, but in this typical two-tier CBDC architecture, which most Western central banks are considering, Bank of England included, that uh, central ledger does not contain or does not have to contain um, uh, personally identifying information. So again, going back to the beginning of the conversation on future flow, when I was saying that in our, um, in our philosophy, uh, the flow of funds is orthogonal to, um, to the principles, right? So in other words, it can be it can be thought of and it can be analyzed independently of any of the entities through which that flow passes. And so in our architecture, that actual central ledger, which the central bank controls, does not contain the, um, the information on the entities. And the reason why, by the way, excuse me, the reason why that's possible is that in this typical two-tier architecture, which, um, which is contemplated in countries like the UK, um, the central bank only operates the, the central ledger and the private institutions actually hold the relationship with the customer. And so it really becomes the question of, of system architecture, whether or not the identifying customer information needs to be passed from that second tier, from the private institutions that are facing the customer towards the, the central ledger where the central bank simply clears the funds from one account to another, right? So from our perspective, there's really no technological problem here and there's no regulatory or, or legislative problem here but but i but i pre, you know i sympathize with the views like the views of the house of lords report that there's really a perceived problem of of um you know the the big brother etc 
Right. So it's perfectly possible to describe a or design a CBDC which doesn't um, breach personal or, or, or civil liberty. You, you've, made, you've made that clear. Indeed, the, the usual tier, two-tier model deals with that very satisfactorily. But I, I'd like to come now to, to your to your more radical views about, um, about how a CBDC could use. And there's, in my reading, there's two of them, and I'll come to the second one in a minute. But the first one is, is really to take quantitative easing, very topical subject right now, a stage further and enable central banks to start influencing broader economic conditions directly by using fund flow data to lend, i.e. to create credit, issuing loans and bonds that are then carried on the the central bank balance sheet. This is where monetary policy and fiscal policy start to, to shade into each other, if you like. So can that be done, this radical proposition you put forward, can it actually be done without compromising the political independence of the central bank? Yeah, so first of all, uh, thanks for the description. I think it's mostly accurate. Uh, <laughs> with, with one tiny caveat is that I would describe it as not taking quantitative easing further. I would describe it as taking quantitative easing back. <laughs> so in other words, really shrinking down the need for massive quantitative easing. Well, I guess we can't do it in hindsight because you know, a decade of it has already been done. And in some countries, three decades of it has already been done. But at least going forward, um, it's really something that takes that massive uh, amount of unnecessary stimulus down and scales it down as opposed to scaling it further. But yeah, so, uh, so going back to your description, in our view of potential CBDC architecture and CBDC use cases, the, the policy innovation, if you will, around all of this rather than the technology innovation is that a CBDC is something that allows the central bank to turn a portion of its balance sheet into a platform on which credit can be created um, with the participation of um, quasi-sovereign fiscal level institutions. Now, going back, so, so, so to put it very simply what this is uh, and to contrast it with the typical CBDC proposals that are floating around um, policy circles right now, and I'm talking about retail CBDC specifically. So in a typical neutral, if you will, CBDC proposal or design, uh, CBDC is something that is simply uh, being taken away from the existing commercial banking system and brought back to the central bank's balance sheet, right? So in other words, let's say individuals like you and me who have some money at private banks, be it Barclays or HSBC, et cetera, may choose to hold a portion of our funds at the central bank itself, right? And that basically creates a CBDC, right? So in other words, I have an account at Barclays. I may choose to take you know, 100 pounds from that account and put it into my account at Bank of England directly. So that's your typical vanilla, if you will, retail CBDC, which is something that I call neutral, right? Because essentially it's a zero-sum game between the private banking system and the central bank. And it's also neutral in the sense that I as a consumer and we you know, at, at individually and we at, at aggregate as a society really um, uh, feel no difference between having a CBDC and not having a CBDC. Right? It doesn't matter to me if I go to Tesco to buy milk, I really don't care whether I pay with my CBDC card or with my Barclays card, right? It's basically, it's the same thing. That's how the CBDC typically is being perceived right now. In our architecture, which um, I would label as an alternative to this, CBDC is not a neutral instrument 
both in the sense that um, it's something that results from additional credit creation rather than simply from uh, transferring some of the liquidity from the private banking system to the uh, to the central bank's balance sheet. Uh, so it's something where the credit is created. So in other words, it's new money being created on top of the central bank's balance sheet. And we can go at length describing how exactly that works. Uh, and so in that respect, it's not neutral. It's, it's additional money that is being created in the system. Uh, but also it's something that uh, is not neutral in the sense that it's money that is potentially used for other use cases other than simply transacting from our mundane uh, daily needs, such as buying milk at Tesco. And what we have in mind here is, um, is the ability of private institutions, you know, large or medium-sized corporations to issue, uh, to, to, to essentially fund themselves uh, on top of the central bank's balance sheet with the help of quasi-sovereign institutions um, uh, performing um, uh, uh, the word escapes me, uh, performing credit um, uh, credit improvement, right? So in other words, the, the assets that are backing the, the, the liability section of the central bank balance sheet needs to be of highest quality. And for that reason, they need to be basically sovereign or quasi-sovereign. Uh, so credit credit enhancement is the word I was looking for. Yes. Uh, so private, uh, so quasi-sovereign institutions providing credit enhancement. So let's imagine uh, uh, an institution like BP, for example. You know, right now uh, it's very fashionable to talk about green bonds, right? So even the UK itself at the country level has issued several green bonds. What exactly that means, nobody knows. What does it mean that the UK has issued a green bond? Do you know? Mm, uh, I'll get back to you on that. Okay, all right. So this is not a hypothetical, by the way. So the UK has a few green bonds outstanding. Uh, if you ask me, I don't know either, right? Supposedly, it's, some, it's a bond um, whose proceeds will be used for green purposes. So let's imagine they can buy a green you know, drilling well, whatever that means. Now, what happens once the money um, goes to the company that has sold the green drilling well? We don't know. They might as well buy real estate in central London, right? That's, that's, that's very hard to tell. So what we have in mind is that institutions or, or the government, for that matter, can, for example, issue um, uh, purpose-driven, uh, purpose uh, for example, green bonds on top of the central bank balance sheet, credit enhancement being provided by um, by a quasi-sovereign institution, and we can talk about what that could be. Um, and, and this way, the money that is being created, and that money is CBDC, can be used for very specific purposes. And uh, by relying on very specific technological features with which we're enabling that money, uh, that money can be serving those purposes for, for quite some time, for a lot longer than it can do otherwise. Uh, now here, of course, the big question becomes is what you posed at the very beginning of your question, which is that can, can we somehow do that while maintaining the political independence of the central bank? And, and, and this is the great misunderstanding because in this whole picture, the central bank um, actually plays no role other than providing the platform itself, right? So in other words, it's not, you know, it's not future flow knocking on the door of the central bank and asking them to monetize um, you know, a, a million pounds in future flows, little bond that will be used for whatever purpose, right? It's really private institutions working in concert with public institutions, working out what sort of overall direction the economic policy of this country needs to take. And then once that's worked out, simply using the central bank and its balance sheet as a platform on which that money can be created and monetized. So in that respect, I really don't see, um, I really don't see a way in which the central bank gets politicized. The central bank is simply a technocratic institution serving the overall uh, policy direction set by, by the institutions that are meant to set it.
On that um, that green bond issue, uh, HSBC published a very interesting report a year or two back, pointing out that the the data you need to collect to check that a bond is genuinely green, i.e. the proceeds are being applied for some green investment purpose, drives up the issuance cost very considerably. I think the figure they had was 6% of the, the value of the money raised, as opposed to the usual 50, 75 basis points you might be, or maybe top end 150 basis points you might be paying. So it's a massive, maybe even as much as four or five times cost to uh, to check that a a bond issue is actually genuinely genuinely green. Anyway, that, that's a whole topic on itself. Um, my question still is: you talked about talked about credit enhancement. Um, you, you talked about the role the central bank can play, but who's actually taking the lending decisions? Is it going to be the central bank? Is it going to be the government? Is it going to be third parties? Someone else? Well, here we need to separate the lending, the lending decision and the, the borrowing initiative, right? So in other words, the borrowing initiative always comes from the private sector, right? So if, uh, if BP wants to issue a green bond that will only be used for green purposes, uh, not just by themselves, but also by the recipient of the funds many steps down the road, that's ultimately the decision of a private entity, right? Uh, now, if it's something that will be put on the balance sheet, on the asset side of the balance sheet of central bank, it's something that needs to have uh, pristine credit quality, and therefore it needs to be enhanced by a quasi-sovereign institution, whether it's the country's export import bank or the development bank or the HM Treasury directly, uh, that can be designed. So, so the credit enhancement decision needs to be taken by that level of institution. And so the lending decision per se happens, or, or the, the credit enhancement decision, um, conceptually speaking, happens on that side. So, so as I said, the central bank here doesn't necessarily play a role. So this is a, 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 a typical public-private partnership, if you will, in which the country, broadly speaking, country-level institutions determine the direction uh, in, in which some of these priority sectors of the economy can, can take, um, and, and the central bank simply providing the means for this to, for this to happen. Now, by the way, this doesn't mean, this doesn't mean that purely private um, areas of activity somehow dry out, dry out or become unavailable, right? Let's not forget about the entire existing banking system and the entire existing financial system, which continues to serve uh, business as usual, right? Here, we're talking about a supplement on top of all of this that, is, uh, um, that exists in addition to everything else that we have um, in the economy. So that's why, you know, a lot of times people, again, people can can take a very radical view on this in terms of the potential implications and uh, and you know the role in which the government can take in the private economy, et cetera. Let's again, let's not forget that this is just a supplement to everything else that is happening in the economy. Now, there's some fairly predictable criticisms that this proposal will will face. You've talked, for example, about credit enhancement. People are going to say, well, well, loans backed by the central bank are going to enjoy a, a premium price. Are they going to pay less? A lower rate of interest uh, than the commercial banks. I've heard what you just said about this is not about displacing commercial banks. This is about supplementing it. So, what is the what, what's your answer to that predictable criticism that uh, money loans backed by the central bank are going to pay less interest than those which are issued on normal commercial terms? Okay. Well, so f f first of all, let's, let's not forget it's not backed by the central bank, right? It's backed by let's call it. Let's call it uh, HM Treasury. Right? Mm -hmm. um, first of all, that already happens, right? I mean, I mean, you always have um, you always have kind of parallel markets, right? Um, 
you know, you can take a regular mortgage or you can take a mortgage through the help to buy scheme, right? This is a very simple example, right? There's always some sort of incentives that are present in various sectors of the economy. Uh, and uh, there's there's nothing unusual about that. This is just one of them. Um, and whether the lo- rate of interest on this particular credit creation will be different from um, from the traditional, if you will, sector of the economy, perhaps. But if anything, that exactly creates those incentives to to steer the economic activity in a particular direction. So again, let's um, let's bring this a little bit closer to reality. Um, was it was it last year? So so this time last year, Bank of England was tasked with a new mandate. I don't know if you heard this, but so bank you know a, a traditional developed country central bank usually has a dual mandate, right? It's to you know maintain price stability and to maintain first uh, full employment, right? So they have to sort of maintain the broad economic growth and at the same time not let the inflation right run too high. We're not going to comment on how well they're doing on that, but uh, let's just say that's that's yeah. kind of the. <laughs> That's the task of a central bank. So about a year ago, Bank of England uh, received an additional mandate from HM Treasury, which is to promote the country's eventual transition to net zero by 2050 or whatever this is, the, the official goal. So just think about it. So, so I think that's pretty cool, right? I mean, that's it's very unexpected, but I think it's, it's interesting. Um, so here we are. This is not hypothetical. This is the reality. Right now, Bank of England has a third mandate, which is to promote the country's eventual transition to net zero. It's not something that they came up with by themselves, right? It's something that the government, you know, their bosses essentially, uh, well, I don't want to call them the bosses, but uh, but the mandate came from the treasury. Um, and from the from all of the speeches and, and research papers that I've seen in the past year, um, and by the way, this is not only unique to, to Bank of England. I've, th- I've seen similar talk uh, from the ECB, et cetera. From what I can tell, they have no idea how to do this, right? But they've been given the job, right? So, uh, so going back to your question, you know, well, does this create incentive? Is this lending going to be, you know, at a low interest rate, etc.? Well, they have a job to do, right? That job comes from if you if you ask me, that's actually the right way to set things, right? It's essentially a government directive, right? Like you have to, you know, our a government of this country, whichever whatever we may think about, it has created a direction for the country, right? Which that it needs to be kind of somehow pushing itself and maybe the rest of the world towards the cleaner planet, right? It's not something that the private sector can easily do by itself. And they said, you, the central bank, will be taking charge in steering the economic activity into that direction, right? So what other than this can be a perfect example of how this sort of model can be actually used in real life to incentivize that movement, right? So now all of us, let's imagine the the non-neutral CBDC, retail CBDC actually exists in the United Kingdom, right? The central bank has a mandate to promote essentially green economic activity. You and I, the private entities, um, want to participate in green economic activity, right? And here we have the central bank that helps with that, right? And we have hopefully some other government level institutions, hopefully the treasury itself, which will be supporting that. So, so I think it's I, I think it's okay that uh, that there will be some. Um, uh, misalignment, if you will, in in rates of interest, etc., because that's the whole point. This is how you direct activity into a specific sector. What about the second predictable criticism that the central bank, or, or as you rightly pointed out, HM Treasury starts um, picking winners? So, some entrepreneurial company comes along and says, "Well, I've invented this slime which eats carbon, uh, and if only you give me, you know, hundred million pounds, I'll be able to create slime manufacturing." 
uh, factory and we'll be able to advance towards net zero by 2040 much more quickly. How do you avoid running into those sort of John DeLorean or Theranos style criticisms that, that governments are, are, are picking winners in areas they know nothing about? So ultimately, this can only happen in, in my view, this can only, can only happen in areas where we see very obvious market failures. Okay, so, so let's, first of all, let's talk about, let's separate between sort of hypothetical problems and, and hardcore problems. So the hardcore problem, I agree that a central bank cannot be in the business of choosing winners and losers because the central bank is not a political institution. It's not run by elected government officials, right? They, they're supposed to be neutral and they're supposed to be technocratic, just doing the job of running the financial system. So, so that's the hardcore problem. And I think we've already addressed that, that it's not really the central bank that is setting this direction and choosing winners and losers, et cetera. It's something that comes from higher up, right? So that's, I think that's clear. Now, in that case, the problem becomes not hardcore, but more like softcore, which is, well, yes, the government can be wrong. Yes, the government can be uh, maligned potentially, or it can be uh, you know, setting the country in the wrong direction. Let's put it this way. Um, but that's not a hardcore problem in the sense that they can do it anyway, is the question of the means and the tools. I just think that this is a much more effective and technologically savvy 21st century way of managing the economy. Um, and we can, you know, we, 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 see, we see examples of both successful and unsuccessful steering of the economy by the government uh, in various parts of the world. Um, and and we, can, we can, first of all, very credibly say that it can happen with or without CBDC, right? We don't really have CBDC anywhere in the world right now in any meaningful fashion. But if you want some examples, you know, let's talk about, again, maybe that's not a great example, but let's say um, industrial capacity uh, and, and real estate in China. You know, one may wonder that, or one may argue that that's been an incorrect development policy over the past two decades in China. Uh, others may, may argue that that's actually been the right policy because it's lifted so many people out of poverty. Uh, one way or the other, that's something that happened without CBDC, right? It's just, well, the country chooses to do something and it does it, right? It may be right, it may be wrong, but it's, uh, it, uh, you know, it's not really for us to decide. Another great example is post-war Japan. Right, post-war Japan employed um, uh, credit guidance very effectively at first, and then it ran into trouble. So, but you know, let's face it, Japan has become one of the world's most developed countries in uh, throughout this period. And we may criticize it for what happened in the eighties, but nevertheless, um, if we compare it with where it was after World War II, we may conclude that actually setting some priorities for economic direction of the country is not such a bad idea. So, but one way or the other, it happens without, it, it, really, it, it, it is really something that is beyond the scope of the discussion of the CBDC. The CBDC is simply a tool to achieve something like this. Is there a potential upside here for, um, even for fiscal policy? You know, governments are quite good at raising money in taxes or borrowing money in the markets and then splurging it on an airport or a hospital or a motorway. And maybe some years after the event, the National Audit Office will write a report saying it wasn't very good value for money. Does this way of funding um, market failure projects, if you like, actually create the opportunity to measure the return on, on those investments as they much sooner than a National Audit Office report? I mean, could it improve government accountability for its spending? Absolutely, because it, it creates very, very, um, very 
significant level of transparency without infringing on um, individual privacy. So the, the two core the two core properties of uh, our architecture of CBDC that we always talk about as advantages of, of, of our CBDC is programmability and auditability, right? Mm-hmm. One, programmability is this idea that you can actually direct funding into very specific areas of economic activity and make sure that it stays there for basically as long as you as long as it's needed. Uh, auditability is this idea that you can, as you said, you can uh, very clearly monitor the circulation of that money without necessarily involving uh, the monitoring of the individuals or entities who spend the money. So it's very clear, essentially, what the, the created funds are doing in, uh, in the economy. And that has to do both with you know, government-style spending, which you're describing, but also going back to our discussion about things like greenwashing and green audits, et cetera. That is just something that, uh, that comes automatically out of the box. Mm-hmm. Now, you, you just mentioned programmability. Now, this is, this is the second radical view which you have, which I, I said I was going to bring up a, a, a few minutes ago. So you're talking about using a CBDC to inject liquidity into specific parts of the economy. And you, and you know that they need liquidity because you've got this funds flow data. You can see that economic activity is declining in that area. So you use a CBDC and you can kind of pinpoint exactly where you need to inject money, if you like. And we see the, the, the central bank in China um, actually doing this uh, in a way. They're airdropping uh, renminbi into those parts of the economy most affected by, well, most towns and cities most affected by, by COVID. Um, I mean, this is, this is a radical way of thinking about monetary policy. It's a radical way of thinking about CBDC. Um, talk about it more. Tell us more how you see it actually operating in, in practical terms. Yeah, so what we usually mean by, what we mean by programmability, I think differs quite a bit from what uh, the profession usually means by programmability when, when it talks about CBDC. So traditionally, programmability, I would describe um, when, when, when it's being discussed in the context of CBDC is something that I would describe as uh, essentially contingent liabilities, right? It's um, delivery versus payment style um, scenario where let's say, you know, you, you subscribe to a journal and, you know, the money gets paid every month or, you know, you click on something and the money goes to a person who posted a tweet or something like that. Well, it's really something that simplifies spending the money and, and essentially, uh, in that respect, in my mind, it doesn't really go any further from what we already have today. You know, nothing prevents you from setting up a direct debit that pays for your monthly magazine subscription, right? Or nothing prevents you from setting up an automated payment to do something that simplifies your life. In our architecture, programmability means something different. Uh, it means empowering um, specific units of monetary value with certain be- behavioral traits. And in that respect, uh, I like to compare them essentially with like cells in our body, right? Our cells know what to do by themselves somehow that is encoded in them um, a creation. And that's something that is very similar to how um, units of monetary values, uh, units of monetary value in our CBDC architecture behave. They don't have to, by the way. So in our architecture, your traditional plain vanilla CBDC can exist with no programmability features, right? So in other words, you can easily issue or imagine issuing a tranche of CBDC, which acts just like regular money, right? You spend it on anything um, and and you don't really see any difference. But some tranches of CBDC can be issued with varying degrees of programmability, which has to do with ensuring that economic activity stays at least for predetermined period of time within a given area of the economy. 
And in that respect, it really helps to, as you mentioned, it really helps to direct liquidity in the into the specific sectors of the economy uh, where that liquidity is needed most. Now, in your description, the sectors, uh, the areas of the economy are more like geographic areas of the economy. Um, and there's nothing wrong with that. Uh, in our understanding, usually it has to do with conceptual areas of economic activity. Again, going back to things like green spending, et cetera. But, uh, but there's nothing wrong with, uh, with the geographical angle either. So you could have a CBDC program that can only be spent in these postcodes. Um, theoretically, yes. Theoretically, uh, nothing prevents you from doing that. And by, and as, but, but it's very clear, it's, it's very important to mention this. Not all of CBDC has to be like that. Some tranches of it can be like that, yes. So we're talking, if I was stumbling for a commonplace metaphor, you're talking, you know, QE up to this point has been a bit of a blunderbuss. You buy all these bonds from institutional investors. The money ends up in the bank and you hope the bank lends more money to, to people. Um, what we're talking about here is actually a much more precisely targeted uh, a rapier versus a blunderbuss. Is that a reasonable way of thinking about what you're proposing here? I think it's I think it's a great analogy. So the exactly as you described, the the problem with QE is that you're really relying on the banking system or the financial market, broadly speaking, to deliver what you're trying to achieve um, towards the greater masses, if you will. And as we've seen. Um, based on our experience over the past decade plus, that doesn't really work very well. It creates a lot of distortions in places where you don't necessarily want to see those distortions, where there's financial assets, real estate, etc. But it doesn't necessarily deliver um, extra economic activity in the areas where you actually wanted to see them. And I suppose we can't really blame central banks for having put in place so much QE over the past 10 years because they simply didn't have any other tools but with the emergence of a tool like CBDC, the central bank would hypothetically be empowered with a much more surgically precise uh, instrument that can help it to achieve its mandate, if you will, set by, by higher institutions uh, without hopefully creating those distortions. And of course, what we're seeing in the market now, what we're seeing in the economy now, specifically in 2022, is kind of the payback for all of the side effects that the QE and other forms of stimulus have been creating over the past decade. And hopefully we can learn from that a little bit more sophisticated going forward. I'm trying to hold in my mind these two radical views you have about, you know, a, a narrower version of, of, of QE, if you like, a, a surgically precise delivery of liquidity to exactly where it's needed. Does this mean that we should start to think about CBDC in much broader terms, kind of move away from it being purely a monetary instrument and start to think about it more as a crucial part of some kind of um, national or civil or social infrastructure, uh, which lots of different private sector actors can develop new services. They, they, they come and, uh, with ideas for borrowing money, whether it's to invest in a green project or to invest in, in something else. So you, you retain the creative energy of private companies and, and entrepreneurs, but it has this bedrock infrastructure um, of programmable central bank money, um, which those various entrepreneurs and private companies can start to use to create these more precise, more effective products and services, including credit for green projects or credit for parts of the economy which need uh, rapid and precise injections of liquidity. Am I, am I putting too much, um, thinking too hard about what you're proposing? Does it make sense 
in your mind to think about what you're proposing as a, a CBDC as a, as a national social civil infrastructure as opposed to just central bank money? I think you're describing it quite well, and I think you're painting a very a very nice looking picture. I, I thank you for that description. I think it describes really well how we think about CBDC and, and really highlights that crucial point, which is that the way we think about CBDC is that it can be a lot more than just a, a payment platform or a simple monetary instrument. And in that respect, our vision is very different from the kind of the mainstream discussion that takes place around retail CBDC right now. Because to be clear, the mainstream discussion does not see CBDC as anything other than a purely neutral and, um, and mundane payment platform that is redundant to the existing payment platforms. Um, and as I mentioned at the beginning of our conversation, our view is, it is indeed radically different from that because we think that the introduction of something like the CBDC is a, is a, is a generational opportunity for the central bank and for the, society, for the society in general. It is something indeed that gives us the opportunity to rethink what are the core um, elements of our, um, of our economy and can we add an additional one that can do a lot more than simply to help us make payments because uh, in I'm very convinced that in the developed world at least the problem of payments doesn't exist anymore it's been solved and to put an additional solution into the space is 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 a huge waste of opportunity and I really hope that the existing CBDC retail CBDC debate moves beyond that and it doesn't um, it prevents us from wasting this opportunity simply on creating a, 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 a mundane payment platform. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think there are lots of people who would agree with, with you about that. In fact, we're going to be talking about that on a webinar a bit, uh, a bit later this week. We've talked for a long time, and I must let you go in a minute. But before I do it, I'll just go back to, to something more basic about, about central banks, which is that they are responsible, as you yourself said a, you know, a few minutes ago, for financial stability. And the modern central banking methodologies, if you like, arose out of the great financial crisis back in 2007, eight. Uh, a lot of the regulation um, emerged from uh, the inability to work out who owed what to whom. And so the system imploded because of ignorance, really, as much as um, ignorance and fear rather than anything else. If, you're, if we're operating in a, in a system of the type, financial system of the type you've described, we're actually, we know a lot more about who owes what to whom we we can see the see the flows we can see them in in real time so we can uncover those interconnections between different members of the financial system networks much much more quickly is that one of the benefits of of the the flow data-based system which you've described does it actually add to financial stability because we know more so yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't think that we would necessarily know who owes what to to whom, uh, but what we would know is is exactly as you described. The, what we would know is the crucial fault lines in the overall liquidity picture in the in the banking system in the financial market. What we've seen very clearly in in the networks and models that we have uncovered, both in synthetic data and in, in, and in real life data, is that these bottlenecks and these potential fault lines um, really reveal themselves quite well. And I think they may potentially empower any central bank with a much better understanding of the structure of the financial system and of the potential um, failure points or bottlenecks or, or fault lines within the financial system. That's for sure. Mm -hmm. Now, I, I divided 
your world, if you like, into the into these two parts, um, the financial crime part and the and the CBDC part. But as I've listened to you, I've become more aware of the fact that actually it doesn't. It might be convenient to think of it like that, but actually these two capabilities are really ultimately one, or they can certainly work together. So you can start to use the same data set to combat financial crime, but also to uh, improve pockets of illiquidity in the economy, to enhance um, financial stability, you know, give people money if their part of the economy is, is damaged by COVID much more precisely, much more surgically. So I'm, would it be more sensible to think about this as really just a, a more complete understanding of the flows which are going on within a, a closed or indeed an open financial system and therefore you can uh, enact or make policy decisions which are more effective. Are these ultimately just different facets of a single data set which intelligent policymakers can work off? Or is it- yeah, you're absolutely right. You're really talking about the same conceptual technology, which is applied slightly differently in the two different areas that you described. Mm-hmm. However, the big underlying difference is that essentially we're talking about two separate uh, forms of money. So when it comes to the, let's say, financial crime use case and understanding the the overall banking um, account universe, et cetera, you're talking about analyzing commercial bank money, right? So that's it simply is, as you said, a data set on which the, the technology is, is employed. When you talk about the CBDC use case, uh, you're talking about the not yet existent form of central bank retail digital money, right? So it's a hypothetical form of money that doesn't yet exist, but may exist should, should the central banks choose to implement it. And in that respect, the, pretty much the same or very similar technology applied to that world um, acts very differently. Um, I mean, not different, it acts very similarly to a, just a slightly different use case. Now, what prevents the, the, the same sort of CBDC style use cases in the commercial banking system space, actually nothing. And ironically, when we first started thinking about future flow, we really aimed it at the commercial banking space. Um, however, we realized that the, the, the task, the sort of the coordination um, um, task of you know, bringing multiple parties on the same page, et cetera, is humongously complex. And it's something that we will probably never see in our lifetime. That We could be wrong, but... Uh, what, what's, what makes this a lot easier and a lot more elegant in the world of central bank digital money is that you have one single actor, which is just the central bank. And so there's no coordination um, challenge. But yes, conceptually, it's the same technology. Yeah. One final question for you. You alluded earlier to, to two lost years, 2020, 2021, you lost them to, to COVID-19. Conversations came to a halt as, as central banks and banks tried to work out how to use uh, Zoom and and Microsoft Teams, are those same audiences now, and I'm talking here of central banks, maybe other regulators, also commercial banks, are they actually showing genuine interest now in what you're describing to them? Uh, we are show, we're seeing genuine interest uh, in the financial crime space right now. There's no doubt about that. I'm very excited about all of the developments in that space. When it comes to the CBDC part of the business, I must say that our views remain very much um, on the radical side of the debate right now. Uh, I must admit that the mainstream narrative in the CBDC space is still very much focused on on, uh, that neutral, simple Mm -hmm. um, payment platform kind of um, level. So 
my impression so far is our views are a little bit too radical for most central banks that uh, we have spoken with so far. It could change. Um, so so that's, that remains to be seen. One thing that makes me quite hopeful, though, is that uh, as time passes, uh, we still haven't seen a single central bank uh, claim with credibility that what they're doing actually serves a purpose. That's one thing that is yet to come out um, of, of any central bank that we know of that is closely studying CBDC. So I remain convinced that the conversation around a neutral payment only CBDC concept is something that is unlikely to see a light of day simply because the decision-making parties will continue to admit to themselves perhaps privately that uh, there's no point in, in implementing one. And so our job is to stay around for as long as that takes place and to be there when they finally come to their senses and realize that, as you said, they have an opportunity to create a crucial element over the national infrastructure, of the national development strategy, over the national development story, um, and do something a lot bigger and a lot more impactful and purposeful than creating a new payment system. So we'll be waiting for them. Alim Sobolevsky, thanks very much for taking the time to share your ideas with us. Thank you for your patience. Mm-hmm.